This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. <coughs> no, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Listen to me, traitor. I believe that you've received the death message from our ninja empire. Ninja is supreme and you have double-crossed him. Why did you do that? I have to reform the ninja empire. That is why I took away it. That is why I took away it. The golden ninja warrior. The golden ninja warrior. You've got three days in which to return the golden ninja warrior. Right? Or else you die. What, 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 what is that? Or else you die. Go, go, go to hell. Welcome to the Golden Ninja Podcast, episode 5, and its uh, title is To Catch a Thief versus Ninja Thunderbolt. And that production, Ninja Thunderbolt, is a landmark at Joseph Lai's IFD Films and Arts. It was reportedly the very first cut-and-paste production of theirs to feature the hot new item on the martial arts movie block, Ninjas. Because they've done cut and paste before, but not featuring ninjas. It was all inspired by the success and impact of Enter the Ninja from 1981, starring Franco Nero and Sho Kasuji. 1984 also saw IFD trying out the cut and paste formula via modern day action movies. You had Mission Thunderbolt, you had Majestic Thunderbolt, but the same year it would be ninjas that made a financial splash they were after, and that they were after, and that lasted for a few years. Suitably, they sourced an already existing ninja movie of note with energy and action that they inserted their Western cast of, among others, Richard Harrison, Pierre Tremblay and John Ladalski into. And the choice, the source movie was Tommy Lee's 1984 Taiwanese actioner To Catch a Thief, which is actually a Hong Kong slash Taiwan Japan co-production. And uh, it's also known as To Catch a Ninja and the Ninja and the Thief. And all of that became, in the end, Godfrey Ho's Ninja Thunderbolt, released the same year in 1984. And because it's a landmark production, and I'm not using that word sarcastically, I think it's only fair to look at both movies and how, respectively, they work via their own agenda. So to say, one being a complete movie, one being a mix of an old movie, mix of new footage. Uh, so we are going to start with Tommy Lee's side of the story after the contact information and all of that. And my name is Kennedy, and with me again to discuss all of that is Neon Harbors Ed Glazer. So say hi, buddy. Ninja! Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's the first appearance of the... Uh, uh. <laughs> it got weirder, that echo. It got like Ninja Commandments. So that echo is almost surreal when it runs up the hill. They're just pushing all the buttons on the uh, on the mixer, the effects mixer. Yeah, it's like they brought in their kids or something. Like because kids, kids like to push buttons. Like, beep, beep, beep. what does that do? It's an echo. Oh, echo, reverb, robot, underwater. <laughs> uh, it's kind of the most outrage. One of the one or two most outrageous thing in the film, Ninja Thunderbolt. As we'll talk of, this is as much of a landmark production as it is. It's not goofy. It doesn't feature robots delivering death messages. You have this. <laughs> you have your trader. You know, it's kind of straight, you know, Godfrey Ho, Joseph Lyon Company, trying to take ninjutsu seriously and be serious genre filmmakers, kind of. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know if that's entirely accurate. 
half or maybe tenth serious filmmakers. There you and, go. <laughs> uh, but all righty, let's uh, talk of uh, To Catch a Thief and Ninja Vanderbilt in a little bit. But first of all, the contact information, this is the Golden Ninja Podcast on the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com along with all the other shows on Hong Kong, Japanese and Taiwanese cinema and what have you. Uh, plus bonus episodes, exclusive bonus episodes you can find on that website. We have an email address, feedback, questions, and what have you, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We are present on Facebook. Like our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. And also join the discussion that's going on between uh, us and all the listeners and uh, all the good people over at our discussion group. You can reach that through a link on the page I just gave the URL to, or type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search box, and you'll find the group that way. And follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. And coincidentally, I write about ninjutsu movies, IFD style, at sogoodreviews.com, and I mix that up with looks at the various Taiwanese movies and sleazy Hong Kong movies as well, and I do little video reviews, spoken, let's just say spoken, audio commentaries, uh, small ones at sleazykvideo.com and I tweet at twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. The Golden Ninja podcast is available on iTunes and if you subscribe, please rate us as well. Click the little star rating and if you have the time, please leave a sentence or two uh, in terms of um, and tell us, rather, what you thought of the show. That will act perfectly fine as a review. So thank you very much if you do so. And finally, on my end, you can stream us via Stitcher Radio if you don't like downloading podcasts to your device uh, through their website is one option but you can also download their application through the various app stores out there they support iphone ipad and android i believe so over to you ed neon harbor is your home away from home your all your all your productions including space ninja so why don't you tell listeners where your website is and what is space ninja Absolutely. Uh, you can find me, uh, my films, and web series, including Ninja the Mission Force, which uh, uh, parodies the kinds of movies or in some of the specific movies uh, that we talk about here on the show at neonharbor.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash neonharbor and at Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash neon underscore harbor. And yes, I do have a new DVD uh, coming out. Uh, it's probably out by the time you're hearing this, but uh, at the time of recording, it's going to be a couple of weeks. And it is uh, Space Ninja, which is uh, sort of unrelated to uh, the kinds of ninja movies we talk about here, but um, uh, is a little bit uh, more on the serious side, despite the sort of uh, intentionally outlandish name. Mm. And is this, uh, as a matter of fact, I might be remem- remembering this wrong, yet, but in fact, it is uh, an animated series of movie, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is uh, an animated film. It is um, the brainchild of a good friend and co-conspirator of mine, Alex Mitchell. Um, it started off as a web comic, and uh, I loved it so much that I uh, basically forced him to turn it into uh, an animation. Um, I hope I didn't have to try too hard, um, but uh, he taught himself Flash animation in order to uh, to do Space Ninja, and it's really fun. It's a really fun uh, film. It is essentially Kurosawa in space. It's got giant floating space castles and, and temples and an enormous 
uh, technological dragon and uh, just some really fantastic artwork. Um, music by my favorite film composer, Chuck Serino. Uh, and it tells the story of a cybernetic ninja who has to protect a society of uh, feudal space dwellers from a sadistic, undying demon lord. Wow. Epic. <laughs> really epic. Uh, did uh, Mr. Mitchell actually, um, just as a curious question on my behalf, did he actually work on the animated episode of Ninja of Mission 4? So did you teach yourself Flash to do that episode? Uh, no, the um, the animated episode of Ninja the Mission Force was done by um, another cohort of mine, uh, Kevin Folliard, who animated uh, Press Start Adventures, my previous animated series. Alex does show up in most episodes of Ninja the Mission Force as Ninja Goon of the Week. Excellent, excellent. NeonHobby.com it is. So we are taking a musical break to play something from To Catch a Thief, probably something stolen, because IFD stole music, but Taiwanese cinema, they raided the composer's uh, record collection as well. Uh, the composers for Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies were necessarily not composers at all times. They picked tracks, you know. That'll be good, that'll be good, that'll be good, you know. Music directors, or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, music supervisors. Mm-hmm. Fancy name, but uh, you know, theft of the highest <laughs> of the highest order. And sometimes, oh, yes. uh, I mean, it's strange that that so many Asian movies have been able to have official releases despite all this. I mean, it's either that the proper copyright holders have been compensated, or it just slips under the radar and no one cares and or no one notices. But uh, there are some cases that I know Jackie Chan's. Snake in the Eagle Shadow, even back in the day, got an alternate soundtrack because there's a lot of music there from the uh, synth group Space. I think the track is Magic Fly and the group is Space. And uh, Jean-Michel Jarry as well, the uh, Oxygen Oxygen Part 2 is uh, wildly sampled for that martial arts movie. And it works beautifully, but I, I th- there is an alternate uh, dub of that movie, Sans, that music. I would be very surprised if any of these kinds of films... Um paid money, uh, paid royalties to use to properly license the music. That's exactly my point. Like, if they they, they got away with it in the day, but if, if nowadays, if there is a Western release, I think they, the eyes are on them a little bit more. I mean, even the uh, company that re-released most of the Flying Guillotine, the uh, Jimmy Wang Yu movie, they got to release it as is, with the stolen music by, among other things, by uh, the, among other uh, fever in the movie, was a track by the German group Neu, but like a release or two later, they said, enough's enough. And it was actually rescored with um, an alternate soundtrack, which is a shame because sometimes it's really well picked. I I know how that goes, absolutely. So there you go. Um, Maybe we'll talk of uh, what we find in these movies uh, in terms of uh, music theft, uh, but uh, listen to uh, the first piece of music and uh, we'll be back after the break.
Welcome back. And first of all, a little rundown of what's to come because we have a few segments this time. So if uh, you want to skip ahead to any particular segment, look for the start times of each in the show post on the website. And I think that information gets transferred to the podcast apps as well. So first up, we have the To Catch a Thief section. We'll lead with a biography on actor Don Wong as well as actor Yasuaki Kurata. And then we'll discuss a review To Catch a Thief. There will be a break, and after that, we talk and review Ninja Thunderbolt. No added uh, bios uh, there, so uh, that's uh, all simple. But if you want to skip ahead, that's uh, that's your reference point. So here we go. 1984's To Catch a Thief, and plot from my review of the film. Businessman Cedric Chan hires ninja Richard Ling, played by Yasuaki Karata, to steal a valuable jade horse that he's, insure- that he's insured for a large amount of money. That is uh, Seduk Chan, the businessman. On the case is, is cop Don, played by Don Wong, who loses his wife uh, when he makes an enemy in the ninja. And also on the case with Wong is an, is an ass-kicking insurance agent, played by actress Yin Su Lee. So there you go. Uh, background, uh, as we talked of, this is also known as The Ninja and the Thief and To Catch a Ninja. It's a 1984 Gam Ming-directed movie. He's also known as Tommy Lee. And it all stars, as I said, Don Wong and Yasaki Kurata. And uh, Tommy Lee was an action director working the Taiwanese martial arts movie scenes in the 70s on movies such as Black Panther, Four Real Friends, The Golden Triangle, Triangle which is a... A Taiwan Thai co-production, I believe. He worked on the Jackie Chan star, Shaolin Wooden Men, which is one of my favorites out of uh, those uh, movies Jackie did pre-superstardom. Tommy Lee also worked on The Hot, The Cool and The Vicious and Eagle's Claw for director Lee Cho-nam. He's also a main director of five movies, the last of which is the one we're talking of today, To Catch a Thief. He also directed the uh, Liu Xiaofan movie Crisis. And uh, Liu Xiaofan, you might have seen her credit in IFD movies, uh, Ed, because she was always credited as Fonda Lin at IFD. She's in various cut-and-paste movies as well as complete movies at IFD. I call her I, I call her my movie wife. I was just about to comment on that, uh, but uh, you added yourself. You can't have her, Ed. She's mine. Fair enough. <laughs> get, your, get your own. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy also directed Impossible Woman, starring Elsa Jung. You can have Elsa, she's a good-looking woman. <laughs> and uh, also as an actor, you can see Tommy Lee in The Hot, The Cool, and The Vicious as part of the fighting trio. He's the character with gold hair. I think he's got like white, um, uh, white face makeup and gold hair, and he's the villain of the piece. So you can see Tommy, albeit obscured, but he's in, uh, he's in the movie. And The Hot, The Cool, and The Vicious is this uh, quite popular Lee Chonam movie, and uh, I actually did it. It's very, very good. Uh, it's got a great title, and it's good low-budget Taiwanese uh, fan from someone who um, who kind of knew that very well, working with the low-budget, and that is uh, Lee Chonam. Uh, so there you go. Uh, Don Wong, actor Don Wong, who stars in this movie, he's a fan favorite through movies such as The Secret Rivals 1 and 2, and he was quoted as, uh, well, quoted by Hong Kong Cinema View from, from the Brooklyn Bridge website in the following way. Quote, one of the most appealing and reliable independent players of Chinese martial arts cinema. And uh, I would fairly, fairly agree on that. I think uh, anybody with Don Wong is uh, almost kind of automatically interested. Initially, though, he was uh, said to be a discovery of uh, Lo Wei, who's, who's the director of the big boss, Fist of Fury, the Bruce Lee movies. Lo Wei was searching for the new 
Bruce Lee. And the rumor has it Wong was being shaped to be a Bruce copy. I mean, Low Wei even did this with Jackie Chan for a few movies, uh, shaping him to be a Bruce Lee copy, and that didn't really work out, something Jackie was not comfortable with. Uh, but uh, there you go. I mean, he was a lead for a while, but even if not a comfortable lead. But uh, history proved that uh, Jackie had his own, could bring his own shops, and uh, obviously he broke out in, uh, in the late 70s. But anyway, back to Don. He got his uh, first like big part was was more of a Bruce copy part. He um, his uh, debut was um, as one in Chinatown Capers, which is a 1974 movie directed by Lo Wei. That was his debut. Uh, Don Wong. Uh, it was uh, not a main role. Uh, it's uh, his first starring role will come under Lo Wei in a Latin movie that year called Yellow Faced Tiger, aka Slaughter in San Francisco. Uh, where he reportedly, because I haven't seen it, showcased uh, great talent, uh, and uh, he took on Chuck Norris in the movie, but was hindered, you know, by that forced nature of the Bruce Lee mannerisms that were, you know, were being pushed for and they were being included. But uh, so Low Way tried to shape him, but it was a box office failure, and uh, Don was dropped by Low Way's company by that point, so it didn't work out. But the history, uh, history turned out to be pretty good after. After all, a few years later, independent filmmaker Umsuyum picked Don to star in his uh, 1976 indie classic Secret Rivals alongside kicker John Liu and versus the two of them versus the Silver Fox himself or Wang Jiang Li. There's no more Bruce Lee shadow anymore in Don's uh, filmography by this point. You know, martial arts gimmicks of another kind was being born through this movie, you know, and even martial arts cliche, cliches. And it was through this uh, pairing up of southern and northern fighting style in Secret Rivals that was then, you know, two against this. They teamed up and it was two against this invincible white-haired villain that Wang Jiang Li played. And box office success was uh, came in the end, which was really good to see. So Msiyun, who uh, produced... Uh, Drunken Master and Snake and Eagle Shadow and various other movies, and he would, uh, he would, as I said, go on to do that again with a certain someone named Jackie Chan. So I always respect Umsiyun for that, and he's a pretty good, pretty good director too. I always like his movies. So Don went on to star in the mentioned The Hot, The Cool, and The Vicious under the director direction of uh, Taiwan indie master Lee Chonam, and he also he worked a lot with Lee Chonam, and a lot of people did. Too, because he he did so many movies and the Taiwanese cinema industry is very small compared to Hong Kong anyway. But I really dug and uh, I I wish I had time to rewatch it before the show. The uh, movie that he did with Lee called Fatal Needles versus Fatal Fists, and it's this kung fu movie obviously, but it has uh, a dramatic tint to it that is very mature and like very skilled, which I appreciated. So it stood out in my mind and still do. And uh, Don Wong, by this point, uh, in the latter half of the 70s, worked at a snappy pace. He made four or five movies per year. Rarely solo roles, though. He was often paired up with someone or part of a larger cast. Uh, but the career slowly but surely came to an end as the 80s came along. He started mixing Hong Kong and Taiwanese productions. Uh, he appeared in uh, modern movies from uh, Taiwanese New Wave period of the 80s. Uh, he was in The Anger, he was in The Country of Beauties, aka, the, AKA Island Warriors, uh, starring Elsa Jung. And even as late as uh, the 90s, he w- appeared in the sixth 
young and dangerous movie called Born to be King for Hong Kong director Andrew Lau. So it's one of the Donce uh, latter credits. Uh, at one point he lived in Thailand, or maybe he's still living in Thailand, uh, and uh, he actually is said to have become a known TV soap star in Thailand. So I don't know if he by this point speaks Thai or they feature a Chinese character, a Mandarin-speaking character or something like that. But um, I, I don't have the title of the uh, of the show as such. And he speaks wonderful English. There's, a, there's an interview with him on the BCI Eclipse DVD of Ninja Thunderbolt because uh, Don studied in America at one point. So... Um, so uh, he's been interviewed and talked uh, quite eloquently about his career that way. And uh, let's move on to the second uh, favorite. And I'm sure you've seen this guy in a, in a ton of movies because this guy worked. And it's uh, Yasuaki Karata. And uh, he was also described by the uh, uh, Hong Kong Cinema View from the Brooklyn Bridge website in their bio section. And they said this about him. Uh, he's, quote, Hong Kong Cinema's pioneer Japanese actor slash action performer. He brought, bringing besides his riveting screen fighting skills, a brooding, stoic presence a few could match. And they, obviously he got to play Japanese characters frequently, but never like, yeah, well, he did, but his, he had many standout roles that were not of the one-note villain kind, which is really cool to, to have because he's more noted as an actor through movies like Lau Garlung's Heroes of the East and even Gordon Chan's Fist of Legend in 1994. Uh, so he trained extensively in karate, uh, Aikido, Jiu-Jitsu and made his Hong Kong debut under the direction of Shaw Brothers director and legend Chang Che in The Angry Guest in 1972. And another reason why karate remained a, a standout as an actor playing Japanese villains was, and again, to quote that website, his villains were still despicable, fierce fiends, but had an edge and charisma rarely met in such a brand of character, end quote. He would square off on film with many of the time stars. He had fights against T. Long, David Chang, Jimmy Wang Yu, Bruce Liang, Polly Kwan, and the mighty Shen Sing on numerous occasions, including in Black Panther. Shen, Shen Sing is... is sort of burly, like really great force of a, of a, a martial arts performer, it has been dubbed by someone out there as like the Charles Bronson of Asia. I mean, it's not like he did Death Wish movies. That, that was not Chen Sing's thing, but I, I guess they saw something in the build and the presence, but um, I don't know about that. I like Charles Bronson a lot, but I never saw the connection between him and Chen Sing. Back to Karata, he uh, returned to Japan to work on uh, some movies uh, during this time. He uh, appeared with uh, Sonny Chiba in Executionist and even did TV. Uh, he did one series called G-Man. Again, a late 70s definite highlight would have to be Lau Garlung's Heroes of the East. And it, this has this um, distinct, mature and even substantial feature of being obviously incredibly well choreographed because it's Lau Garlung doing the, doing the action and direction. But to quote myself uh, from my review, uh, the... A notion is retained concerning cultures in need of enlightening each other. And it's no surprise that Heroes of the East is almost completely bloodless. Therefore, no one dies and there's not a drop of blood spilled in that movie. But it's shock full of fantastic action. Because I'm sure you know it a little bit that like the depiction of 
Japanese characters in Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema was not always, you know, flattering and favorable because there's a lot of, you know, ill feelings towards the Japanese. Uh, oh, yes. So, but Heroes of the East is this standout, and even Fist of Legend is a standout. There's, uh, there, there, there is uh, actual stuff written there rather than just to, like uh, cut out carbon, uh, you know, carbon copy of something older, just a uh, uh, stereotypical like portrayal of Karata. Therefore, he's a legend a little bit in that regard. He got these roles and ran with them very, very well. Uh, furthermore, Karata's uh, career includes uh, appearance in Jumbo Ping's classic Legend of a Fighter from 1982. And uh, his uh, performance is uh, singled out there because uh, he has this you know, usual stoic, brooding persona, but he features you know, touches of humor and humanity in that role. I believe he's the teacher of... Uh, the character Lung Gaian plays uh, Fok Yung Gap, which is the same character as Jet Li played in uh, Fearless. So it's uh, a movie based on the same uh, character in that regard. He also did modern movies. He worked with Sam Hung on a number of occasions, uh, among other things, among other movies. Uh, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Star from 1985, where he famously squares off with knives versus Sam Hung and his tennis rackets. So it's a pretty, pretty neat little fight there. And he's one of many ac fantastic action performers to grace Sam Hung's war actioner, Eastern Condors. And he also played a samurai warrior in Sam Hung's Millionaire's Express as well. But as I said, and it's worth mentioning again, he got acclaim, you know, acting acclaim again, and quite notably for his supporting role in Fist of Legend in 1994, which is the Fist of Fury remake. And he has a tremendous fight with Jet Li where both of them are blindfolded, and it's... Uh, Utterly fantastic and, fantastic, and he was this character with wisdom and uh, you know a, a sense of cunningness as well, and that stood out at the time in the movie and still does. So it's uh, very very good. And the sporadic movie appearances nowadays includes uh, So Close from 2002, the uh, the female fighting movie, if you will. Uh, Jack Chance, um, not that he made it, but he starred in it. The uh, Chinyuko Incident, 2009, and Legend of the Fist: The Return of Chen Sen, which was a Donnie Yen movie. Uh, okay, we're into the review, and uh, I would like to stop talking for a little while and just get your brief opinion, first of all, on To Catch a Thief, or, or your version, was it To Catch a Ninja on, on screen? Do you remember that? Mine was To Catch a Ninja, and it had those sort of cheese ball um, VHS camcorder blocky uh, text credits uh, over the opening sequence. Indeed. So, in short, first of all, Ed, what did you think of To Catch a Thief or Ninja? You know, I've, I've seen it... A Maybe well between it and uh, and mission and uh, Ninja Thunderbolt, I've probably seen the film uh, I don't know six times or something. And uh, you know it doesn't really stand out for me, but there are some elements of it that uh, are quite cool. Um, there's a lot of good action. Um, there's some really fun stunt work, um, car stunts, and so forth. Um, and of course the, the one. A uh, truly amazing thing about it, which is uh, ninjas on roller skates chasing uh, Don Long in his uh, tiny car. Yes, indeed, and we, we'll we'll get to connect it to your own work a little bit later in the review. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you're going to find out later what Ed, uh, how Ed paid uh, tribute to that the scene that Tommy Lee and crew put together. It was not Godfrey Ho that put that together. It was Tommy Lee and crew who put that together. Uh, for me, uh, I kind of agree. It's basic storytelling used as a springboard for plenty of varied and hairy action. And for once, this formula works very well. It's good fun. 
it's not a great story story at all. But as a springboard for action, I so sometimes I can get annoyed about that. But here it's uh, perfectly fine, and it's uh, it's good fun. It might not be super classic, but uh, they feature a lot of it, and um, it's quite varied, which is a key. I think that it's varied. I, I will say that um, referring to it on its own as a ninja film is probably a somewhat misleading. There's sort of an uh, really unexplained uh, use of ninja iconography in the film, and you know ninjas on roller skates, but uh, um, they're sort of out of place and, and weird and unrelated to the rest of the film. It worked in IFD's favor, of course. <laughs> yes, well, yes, absolutely. And IFD even took the time to explain a little bit more about the Richard Ling character, what his, uh, the, how he connected to ninjutsu, uh, because here he's just a thief, but uh, we'll get to Ninja Thunderbolt. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it is fantastic to have, because we watch so many of these movies in, on this show, and we see so many ninja performers, if you will, that are not very uh, present. Or even good, because they're random guys. But here you got, you know, a performer like Yasuaki Kurata who has a presence about him that we've established. So you kind of pay attention to whatever he's doing. And he, if he's a ninja, I'd like to watch that, you know. So uh, and in it's in modern age too, because this is not a period movie. So that's a fun little setup for for the movie that is modern age even though it's as you said a bit shoehorned in you know it would have probably worked if karata was just this thief you know a, a, a masked thief uh, but um and and i in terms of taiwanese cinema industry industry the trend wasn't necessarily ninja 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 it's something that that's what they brought to the table and that's what they made kind of thing you know, it, it takes a while to get going. I mean, the, the heist opening where Karata's character is uh, stealing the Jay horse. Set to uh, set to James Bond music. What's that James Bond music? I heard it later in the movie, and obviously then I made a connection because this... Right, the, because they do use the actual James Bond theme uh, motif uh, later on. But uh, I can't be absolutely 100% positive, but I, I recognize that it's very John Barry. It sounds like a James Bond score that I recognize, but I couldn't tell you exactly which one it was. And it's kind of a pre-reel, if you will. I mean, uh, but it's a heist sequence. Not the most swift opening and depiction of it all, but it, it has you know a decent flow to it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's... It's a ninja doing all of this. Fine, it's uh, kind of fun, but it's not what like sets the movie on fire or anything. It takes a good maybe 30 minutes before the movie kind of just stops telling a story and decides to be all action, which is what I approve of highly. But uh, there, there, there is some fun stuff here. By the way, that jade horse, I hope it's valuable because it looks like crap. It sure does, yes. He, he starts off... Uh... You know, scaling uh, scaling a building and and uh, climbing on a line from building to another building. He's you know doing one of those uh, dealios where he uh, cuts the glass and climbs in and has to dodge guards and crack a safe. And in the safe is this is the MacGuffin, uh, the Jade Horse. And you're right, it looks terrible. Looks like some thrift store find. I mean, I I don't know much too much about Jade, but I think Jade is green, isn't it? You know, that yes. that that horse looked brown. You know, just a 
oversized plastic horse or whatever. <laughs> but, but okay, if you say it's valuable, you know, Cedric Chan, the businessman, then, then of course, of course. But uh, I'm sure that in your like, you know, sparse to medium like intense uh, viewings of Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema, you've appreciated how Daredevil, like the stuntmen were. And this movie is a, a fairly good example of some hairy stunts that would never be allowed in a controlled environment that a Hollywood movie could provide. You know, even the leads do some hairy stunts here. You know, Don Wong at the beginning, he hangs on to uh, the side of the car that the Karata is driving. And it looks to me, I rewound it, that uh, Karata, whoever's driving it, slams Don Wong right into the uh, parked car. Oh, man. And it looks like it, it cuts pretty quickly, but it looks like he's hauling ass and then just slams into it. And the character, you know, dusts himself off and continues to chase. But I don't know how you can plan that stuff. That is just like, okay, just just drive me into the car. You know, I'll, I'll probably be fine or not. <laughs> or perhaps more, uh, maybe more likely the director saying, all right, just drive him into the car. He'll be fine. And Don did it. I mean, and Don is still alive, thankfully. But uh, is this? Um, have you ever been uncomfortable seeing all of these Daredevil stunts throughout, throughout these movies? You no, know, Jackie's movies and Kickboxer King, or is this just fun for fun, despite being so seemingly real and almost mondo in style? Uh, you know, every once in a while, uh, something will get me. Um, there's probably some stuff in the uh, the Thai film that we watched with uh, one of the kickboxing movies where. Uh, I think the, they jumped off the bus or something, and I thought, oh, man, that's got to hurt. But um, it's it's rare. Um, the time, the only time where I know I felt really genuinely uncomfortable was it was a kung fu film called um, Tiger Love. Right. Oh, my God, I know what you're going to say now. <laughs> yeah, where there's a, a child who is sort of being brought up by a woman and a tiger, uh, and they pl- they're playing together, and uh, uh, the tiger gets very pissed takes a swipe at the kid, the shot freeze, freeze frames, and we cut to many years later where the kid is now uh, grown up, and you think, okay, maybe did that kid die? I have no idea. It's so disturbing because he looks he looks so scared. Like, he's not laughing as the shot freezes. They freezes on him being scared, you know, this is, oh my god, this is horrible. And that's, and that's you know, I mean, that's the, uh, something like child, that's child endangerment, not stuntmen just going going for it with gusto. So it's sort of, it's a different situation. Exactly. The, f- the f- funny thing with Tiger Love is that it goes from that to, you know, this uh, horror movie at the end, you know, with the tiger spirit is uh, like taking revenge on a lot oh, of people. Yeah. So it's like a fun-ass movie eventually. But you, that, oh, the, they, the film that, itself is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a Taiwanese movie too. And uh, But man, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, here it's, I mean, since, since I know it's not a snuff film, it, it's fine. But uh, man, it's, uh, it looks hairy. But Tommy Lee, who was also the action director, there, there is skill here on this, you know, not a shoestring budget, but definitely low budget to drive up the momentum of uh, the action itself you know for instance when karata escapes from the police uh, blocking the road you know where, where uh, we got we got those car stunts where where he j- jumps over the cars that are blocking the road and then there is this like fairly good snap to an action uh, concept like that which uh, i also appreciated um, you know, i have the deepest respect for any kind of vehicular stunts uh, definitely especially in hong kong and taiwanese cinema because they're all so mad 
know? The, the vehicle stunts in this film were uh, top notch. I, I was very impressed. And also, I think there is a chance that uh, Tommy Lee had a uh, vehicular expert doing that. Uh, for instance, in many Hong Kong movies, uh, Bruce Law is often brought in when vehicular stunts are to be on screen. So they, they got professionals, obviously. So there you go. P- parts of the movie seems very sloppy. I mean, I, I didn't for even... this coincidence here in the movie. And for instance, when Karata is uh, washed up on the shore, you know, Richard Ling is washed up on the shore, and a woman comes riding down there on a horse and spots someone. Oh, no, are you okay? Which, okay, a woman is going to help him. And it turns out it's the daughter of the businessman Richard is working for, which is an amazing coincidence. It looked like she was supposed to find him anyway, like was supposed to meet him because she was the one who got him to steal the horse. Yeah, he'll probably mess up and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll drive off the car at that point and the tide will take him in to this point. Yeah, that would be good. Exactly. <laughs> or that was the plan all along. You know, go go ahead and dive off the cliff and get yourself injured and swim swim all the way to the beach. I mean, I, I, I normally don't point out these things, but when I notice them, which is rare, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very stupid viewer and I don't spot obvious things but that's one i'm the same way and and i have that same note all right uh but but as i said it's nothing other than basic it sets up a heist and ninja company on his trail don wong returns to his home life his home sex life so and then goes on to the investigation and it's obviously not huge deep storytelling but it's it's sufficient because it springboards it's a nice springboard into good action uh the only thing that's other than the ninja aspect that is shoehorned in is the sex and the nudity i don't mind it but it's definitely a little little other place in this uh, movie but the funny thing is the version we watched of this has uh, alternate scenes of sex and nudity that are not as raunchy in ninja thunderbolt we get what they also shot which is borderlining on pornography at some point it was pretty impressive it's it's pretty, you know, at one point you in the other movie, Ninja Thunderbolt, you see uh, pretty much, I'm glad that the print was dark because you definitely could see on screen the guy's uh, testicles. <laughs> oh, the, I missed that. Yeah, it, it's nothing to rewound and look at. Like. <laughs> but it's, it's shoehorned in, in my opinion. I mean, I, I don't mind it, but it's not this uh, wild movie where we got comedy and ninjas and the heist and the cop and sex and more comedy and musical at the same time so it's it's an element that could have been out of the movie and would have, we would have saved 10 minutes uh, that way but uh, hey it's uh, it's it's what it is so is that something that you you know care about or it was over quickly uh quickly anyway so it didn't uh, slow down the, mo- the movie or anything you know i've kind of come to expect it from uh genre films like that and uh they don't bother me i was surprised that there was a scene one of those scenes in um, Mission Thunderbolt, Ninja Thunderbolt, excuse me, that was not in um, the original film, at least the print that they've uh, released. Um, and, and sort of vice versa. There was somewhere I was like, well, why, why don't you put those in Ninja Thunderbolt? They're still kind of sensational. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's it's common enough that I think, oh, okay, it's one of those. And uh, yeah, yeah, they shot alternates uh, definitely when they were doing this movie. It's not like this movie cuts out. It's literally alternate scenes of um, one or two uh, sexual encounters. Uh, but uh, you wonder to yourself, okay, is it going to turn into a buddy movie? Because Jin Su Lee and Don Wong pair up, kick-ass cop and kick-ass insurance agent. And thankfully, it doesn't, you know, try to do the desperate thing of um, 
injecting comedy either. They they are a pretty decent team, even though she doesn't do as much as Don until later in the movie. But I really admire in there's a few examples of this. In their first encounter together, there are some neat close quarter fights in the office between mainly Don Wong and Cedric Chan's henchmen. And be, I admire them because they obviously in tight quarters and still manage to feature really elongated movements and really powerful hitting and kicking. And I attribute that to Tommy Lee's skill as an action director. So that's a great sellable element, and I enjoy every time there there was fisticuffs on screen, and especially in these cramped uh, settings. Uh, really, um, it's you know sound effects help, but they're clearly powerful too, which is uh, very neat actually. So you know, in a general sense, uh, they, was that uh, how was that part of the action direction for you, the fight scenes, if you will? You know, I hadn't. That's the thing. That's weird. I I, I feel bad. I hadn't thought about. Um, the tight quarters element. I, I kind of always enjoy those scenes where someone bursts in and starts beating people up in an office and it happens more often than you think in these films. But uh, no, you're right. I mean, it really was well executed. It, it, it's, it's you know, sufficient and right to go with the flow as well because it is that saying sometimes of you don't really notice when the flow is on, but you definitely notice when the flow is off, especially when it comes yes. to action movies. When, he, when you feel like, you're not following it, be it the uh, you know crappy camera work or fast edits and what have you. But when it's you know fantastic and fluid, then you're just immersed in it. So I, I, I definitely see that too. I'm glad too that this kind of low budget, sort of drab and bland looking movie could still make an impact because it's not a fantastic looking movie or anything. But Taiwanese Hong Kong cinema had that uh, charm about them that. If it couldn't look splendid, then they could make genre elements splendid anyway with, uh, you know, action in this case. There's also some darkness here that <laughs> it's it's not played funny, but to me it is funny that Don Wong's wife dies quite uh, quite horribly. And um, then well, that's he, that's another one of those weird coincidences because we we get there's sort of a, a gag at the beginning of the film uh, where. Uh, we see the wife at home, and there's a sort of Halloween-style point-of-view shot going through the house, very ominous. And the wife, as she's taking off her makeup, turns around, and there's a dude in a, a monster mask scaring her and grabbing at her and attacking her and stuff. And then he takes off the mask, and it's her husband. Uh, and she's pissed, but not for very long. And then they they repeat that a few scenes later, but this time it's not. Uh, it's not the husband, it's um, Karada. How did he know that his, her husband does that? Because, of course, she does the thing where it's like, oh, you're home early, that's nice. Oh, no, it's not you. Oh, no, I'm dead. Uh, how did he know? No idea, and you're absolutely 100% correct. In this version of the movie, anyway, there's no scene of him listening in or watching like, hmm, I'm going to use that gag later. <laughs> you know? uh, but the beats are quick. You know, wife is dead into the... You know, off the book in terms of he's not playing by the book anymore, revenge and rage. So there's no 20-minute mourning or melodrama here, which is fine because it is an action movie. So by this point, we, we get, you know, action intensity, which is its sellable element and it sells itself very well. 
mainly because we got a we get a lot of variation here, which I'm sure you you notice consciously or unconscious subconsciously. There's obviously fight action, bike stunts, car chases. We go to Japan at one point, so there's a, a ski a ski chase, if you will. I gotta tell you, I think a lot of it is pretty well executed. There's no like dip here or embarrassing execution of any element i think they do really really well and including well you know ski chase if you will that's it becomes this varied template that you by the end realize very much is influenced by james bond but i think they're taking that influence and running with it well and doing something of their own rather than just copying uh, stunts from the James Bond movies, you know? Oh, sure. I mean, if you uh, if you ignore the fact that they use music from James Bond, uh, you you would not be thinking that it's a it's a Bond like film because it's such a different uh, kind of of action film. It was exactly my experience that I didn't think of it until I heard and he was doing, I think, the Japanese part portion of the movie that takes place on a ski resort and that made me think of For Your Eyes Only, I think, or, or one of the... What was Honor it? Majesty's Secret Service has one as Maybe, well. Maybe, yeah. So it's, but it's, it's, it's their own fault, I suppose, but it's not a bad reference to make, especially if you do it really well. I mean, the... Uh, now, if, if I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here very briefly, but uh, um, you have to play, if, if you can, the music that they play at the beginning of the ski resort scene where uh, the baddie and his and uh, uh, evil bad guy, you know, the evil guy's daughter go off to Japan uh, for their, for their impromptu ski party to lay low while uh, the cops are looking for them. And uh, it becomes suddenly this ski travelogue with the cheesiest music (laughs) I have ever heard. It's literally documentary footage because they obviously shot at a busy ski resort, uh, presumably in Japan. I just have a feeling that was in Japan. It's, uh, you never see that uh, kind of landscape in Taiwan anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's good fun. The only thing that, that's comedic, but I loved it because it was so surreal, is right after the, in this version, shortened little uh, beach uh, beach adventure that Jenny and Richard has. I mean, it's a sex scene in Ninja Thunderbolt. It's not really a sex scene here, but they, they have a tent on the beach and there are henchmen that are uh, that come up and attack uh, Richard and what have you. At one point, what, uh, Richard rips off the hairpiece of one of the henchmen and then punches him in the dick, which was fantastic because you didn't expect a henchman to be carrying a wig. It's not a character that we know and obviously don't know after it. And then he punches him in the crotch afterwards, which was this almost surreal piece of one piece of comedy. We're going to do one and we're going to make it really unexpected because I did not see that coming. And so that's uh, surreal. I think it's also surreal that Jenny, for some reason, is a synchronized swimmer or leads a team of synchronized swimmers. Right, you get these these moments of uh, Busby Berkeley for no apparent reason. Exactly, because they they're not setting her up as, you know, they, this is her phase towards the 
towards society or anything. Right? And maybe it's just one of many things that rich people do. But it's 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 almost like Tommy Lee is allowed to kind of shoot whatever he wants and kind of reject whatever he wants because they obviously I think it can be argued that they are making up the script during production a little bit. Um, and and it's fine; it doesn't drag drag your movie down. But it's one of those things that you don't see normally in in any movies of this kind that they stop for a little bit of synchronized swimming. So there you go. But um, I don't know. Do, do you have any notes on the uh, on the hairy aspect of the stunts in the latter part of the movie, especially the car stunts? Is there anything you want to single out there before we talk of the rollerblading ninjas? No. Well, no. I mean, there's no single moment. Uh... But you do spend the entire uh, that entire section uh, sort of thinking, well, I hope I hope they're safe. Yeah, I mean, even a female actress uh, Yin Suli is hanging off her dear life, or like not on she's not on top of the car on the hood, but she's like hanging onto the grill or whatever. You like she's on the bumper essentially for a brief moment, and uh, then. The editing, uh, uh, you never see her uh, drop from the car, but, but the editing suggests that she rolls away. But she is part of it. She's doing it. I mean, Don Wong is even at one point on top of uh, a car that is swirling across the road. He's hanging onto the roof. I think that was Don anyway. But regardless, that was a stuntman that wasn't tied down with wires or anything uh, that they removed afterwards. It's, uh, I don't know. I've never tried that, obviously. I'm, I'm never gonna t- going to. But to me, it just looks like if you're going to drive that fast and swirl across the road like that with someone on your roof, that's just a recipe for disaster and danger. I'm not sure you can do anything but hope that you on the roof holding on is is safe enough. But I, I don't know. It did. What it did make me think of is um, the, the American TV show Mythbusters um, often looks at uh, Hollywood stunts and Hollywood um, physics and, and things like that and, and sees how they apply to real life. And they did one on uh, hanging onto a car and they built an entire rig so that they could try it out safely and see what would fling you off and what you can actually hold on to. Uh-huh. And uh, I was thinking, man, I just I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do what they're doing because I'm pretty sure that uh, one wrong move, one wrong steer, and they are going to fly off. I mean, hitting the pavement is bad enough, but worse comes to worse, you're hit by the car that you're on top of anyway. I mean, it's uh, by that point, it's not you can't calculate these things. Like again, in the Kickboxer King uh, scene from the Thai movie, where they where they all you know uh, are j- jump off the bus or or, or the bus slams its brakes, slams its brake, and you, you can't plan that either. It's just hope it turns out well guys you know hope see you on the other side not that side but when we're done um but it's it's celluloid pleasure definitely so i and, and even you know there's constant attacks by this point because after the car stunts you got don wong having to deal with henchmen with nunchucks uh, chains swords he himself has a pair of size at one point uh which i don't know where he got uh, where he got that from because he, do, he, he doesn't raid the ninja you know, weaponry or anything. But it's fun. It's a lot of fun and uh, it's powerful and I, I can't find anything to complain about uh, such a constant uh, stream of well-made action. And I think that's why To Catch a Thief is good. But it's standout sequence. It's uh, too many anyway. I mean, it's it often comes up. It's the fact that 
for whatever reason, number one, Don Wong is, I think they're still in Taiwan at this point. For some reason, Don Wong is driving one of those freewheelers, I don't know what they're called, and uh, out of a van comes about four or five. I think five. Yeah, ninjas on roller skates, and they're obviously armed as well, and they're attacking his little freewheeled car. And they, this is about a two-minute scene, and uh, it's it's executed well enough, I suppose, but it's hard to think of the scene because you're kind of just focusing on the concept. Right. I mean, absolutely. You, you just can't believe what you're watching. I mean, you know, uh, I'm glad you bring it up that he had um, Don Wong, uh, we've seen him drive, his car before, and it is a regular car. Yes. And then suddenly for this scene and only the scene, <laughs> he has the world's smallest car with three wheels. It's really like they were trying to make this sequence as absurd as possible. But it's fun. It works. I mean, oh, it's it, amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And, and also, I mean, this is not like shameless promotion or anything, but you did put a similar sequence in season two of Ninja, the Mission Force. I guess uh, if you want to set it up, you can. But my question is, question is, was it difficult to pull this off, this homage? Yeah, well, um, that's the thing is that they did it way better than, than I could do it. Your, your scene was pretty energetic, I got to tell you. I, I really dug it. Um, I mean, based on the fact that you're a low-budget production and you're not working with a huge array of trained stuntmen, you, you did a pretty good job, so don't sell yourself short, man. Okay, well, I, yeah, I, that was, it's, it's been one of my favorite scenes for a long time, and since on Ninja the Mission Force we sort of spoof the IFD movies and this kind of counts, um, you know, I, I've been wanting to do that sequence for a while and of course the thing is you, you can hardly spoof it because they're already doing it it's already kind of hilarious yeah. but uh, nevertheless i want to do it anyway and so um i managed to get my hands on um a few willing a few uh willing uh rollerbladers and uh a uh three-wheeled twike um which is an electric sort of hybrid it's not it doesn't have a motor in it you can pedal it or you can use an electric motor um and it looks like a little space shuttle or something and it's perfect i mean it's exactly like the kind of thing that i wanted and uh we did a whole sequence where our hero is being chased by ninjas on rollerblades uh in one of these cars driving around you know uh being silly how long did it take to put it together we only had a morning to do it and that's sort of where that's sort of where the uh the problem lies is that you know we couldn't do a, ser- a sequence as extensive as the one in uh, To Catch a Ninja um, because they do and they do a lot of stunt stuff too. It's you know we're we're not we don't have stuntmen uh, for the sequence. We just have rollerbladers, uh, and so you know we can't do them flipping off, uh, flipping over railings and downstairs and things like that. Uh, so really, we just had to come up with a few like key sequences and uh, and keep it a little bit more on the safe side. Like uh, you, you, you definitely had to shortlist this, or uh, I mean, to because you had so little time anyway. You, it required like very like precise planning. Uh, you know, not as not as much as as you'd think. Um, we were sort of at the mercy of of what was around, and we would kind of do, uh, we would sort of plan out a bit, uh, do a shot, do a reverse shot. Um, and then kind of repeat the process a few times, and then snag some. Uh, some additional footage of um, uh, some additional coverage. So I, I was in the, the back. Uh, I was in the, literally the trunk of a car where so that I could film the ninjas kind of coming towards the camera um, while moving. 
It was good. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it uh, being a low budget production, you as you said, you are facing limitations, but uh, you you pulled it off, and uh, people will f- kind of think, of, "Well, from that Godfrey Ho movie," and you would be right, but you would also be wrong at the same time because yes. it was not due to Godfrey Ho, who probably could have pulled off something akin to it if he had some time. But uh, nope, it's Tommy Lee and crew doing this, and it's pretty awesome. And really, as the end of my notes, I, I, my, 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 my tiny, tiny note about the 2-1-1 fight finale, which is uh, good fun in a warehouse, but they do some uh, some surprising stuff in there. There's more wire-assisted and more fantasy-like feats in here in terms of uh, you know spinning kicks and flips and what have you, And uh, but it's enjoyable as hell, and I love that they use... It doesn't fit, but it just works for the genre. They use uh, sound effects uh, akin to, you know, a Space Invader game. You know, pew, 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 while they're fighting, which is fantastic. I, I mean, I, I've become, I, I get in a really good mood when I hear pew, 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 while they're kicking and kicking. And, uh, good, oh, good yes. Fun, good fun. The, uh, you know, watching um, uh, the Gloria Co character, the, the insurance uh, investigator character fight um, during that sequence. Um, it's a bit like, well, she's she's wearing these um, this uh, blue like work dress with giant shoulder pads, and it's a bit like watching your mom do kung fu. <laughs> um, uh, so that was that was kind of strange, but you know she's an excellent fighter. She is indeed, and it's a pretty um, memorable little finale, which uh, again. There's a lot in this movie, and a lot of it you can absorb too, which, I, which is why I recommend it. No, not for the story or the story drive or anything, but uh, it's constant action at one point, and it never lets up, and it does that very well, in my opinion. So I, as I said in a number of times, I am horrible at even recognizing music that I should recognize in movies, like uh, that score is from Star Wars. Whoa, oh, oh, I knew that. But I didn't. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm, I'm very crap at that things. But those things. But in one scene, there's. Uh, I had to look this up. But I, I'm still going to mention it. There's an instrumental version, a, a different arranged version, because this song is partly instrumental for stretches. But a differently arranged version of uh, "With a Shade of Pale" by the band Procol Harum. And why I'm stumbling on that is the fact that I didn't know. What the song was called, what they were called, but I knew of the song from a scene in Alan Parker's The Commitments when they when they sing it in the church. I think yeah, they are like a rehearsing. You, know, you skip the life and then go. Do cartwheels cross the floor? You know, it's a great song and it's featured here in a scene that I I don't remember which scene, but uh, that I picked out and the James Bond uh, James Bond theme too. But, but but I'm sure there's more, uh, like tons more stuff there. So there you go. Any other music that you recognized uh, from the No, movie? no. And I, I, I recognize, I, I sort of found Water Should Appeal familiar uh, when I was hearing it, but I couldn't place it until you said it. Then it hit me. Mm. It helps that I've watched The Commitments like a bunch of times, especially when I was young. I just loved watching that movie. It was one of those, like, however long it is, it always passed like that. This is such a joyous, uh, joyous piece of uh, cinema. So there you go. A good, good movie to turn on people to music, obviously. You know, they featured a lot, a lot of good ones. You know, covers and uh, and songs in the background. So there you go. And uh, as for availability, a little bit hard to get it. It's an Ocean Shores title, and they're not around to reprint their catalog. I'm not 100% sure they did a Laserdisc as well because they worked the different formats. You know, VCD, Laserdisc. Uh, VHS and uh, DVD for a little, bit, a little while 
that VHS I had or that I bought and had a friend transfer was the cropped English dubbed version of the film with those like horrid redone titles and um, that Ed was uh, referring to and it's called To Catch a Ninja on this print. They were obviously using a textless print so they had to recreate it somehow and Ocean Shores used whatever tech they had at the time and did <laughs> did some amateurish, um, amateurish video shit. toaster. Yes, exactly. But but they, they, they seem to get it right though. I mean they they, they, they try to replicate it as good as good as they can I suppose. Uh, I've actually seen screenshots of a subtitle version too, and this is not surprising because it was a pattern that Ocean Shores used. They were known for that. You know, it could be different from one VHS to the next. First, you got the subtitle version, then you got the English dubbed version uh, on a latter VHS, and it could be different on the VCD and the Laserdisc as well. Like, like if you wanted subtitles, or you had to look out the VHS because the Laserdisc was only dubbed, etc., etc. Sometimes they even varied in length, the various movies. Like, I know Kirk Wong's The Club is uncut on their VHS and subtitled. But when they put out, when they put out a dubbed Laserdisc version, it was missing some violence for whatever reason. So, uh, The dub, the English dub, is sufficient. Uh, it's pretty decent, which is a relief because Ocean Shore's dubs were often quite bad. And I, I dubbed them myself Rudolph dubs based on the uh, dub for Wolf Devil Woman, a.k.a. Wolf and Ninja. One of the characters, Ocean Shores, dubbed Rudolph. Yeah. I, 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 this dub is completely different, actually. So uh, they, they were given such silly names, you know, IFD style, uh, almost. And this was even done for period fantasy and martial arts movies. I mean, there's a movie called Nine Demons, and it's a fantasy period movie, and it features characters called Steve. They meant it, what they were doing, oh, kind of. It's, man, it, I love that. It's amazing, but it's like the period adventures are in special effects world of Steve and whatever, you know, whoever, whoever he was paired up with. Good stuff. The, the downside to that is when they did these tracks, not in the case of To Catch a Thief, though, they often didn't work for whatever reason with separate audio elements. So they just did the track right over the music and most of the effects which essentially is overdubbing so you could hear characters talk and then you essentially heard the original track gets uh, the volume got higher on the original track so it was really distracting in that in that case uh, the only way to see certain movies you know that overdub but um, the dub version of Thief uh, is, is not like that as I said but um, so 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 thankfully th- thankfully that wasn't a distraction but, uh, but yeah, Nine Demons and uh, Wolf Devil Woman, they got Rudolph and they got Steve in there as main characters. So. Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Wolf Devil Woman, Rudolph could kind of work because it's set in snow, but that's me excusing mm. that the crap works. So. I prefer the IFD presented version of the complete uh, Wolf, and, uh, Wolf Devil Woman as Wolf and Ninja. The dub is way better. It's a good fun movie. Uh, Alright, we are done with To Catch a Thief. That was to look at the original and now we take a look at how IFD retooled the movie into um, what they perceived to be market value. You know, add ninjas, add Western faces, and release it as a new movie. And thus they did. They'd been doing it for a little while, but this was the first time they involved ninjas. And it's therefore time to talk of the break Ninja Thunderbolt from 1984 as well. So sit tight and we'll be right back.
Welcome back, and uh, this is our review of Ninja Thunderbolt from 1984. You can't get me to pronounce these titles any other straight way. We're not going to sit there. Welcome to the review of Ninja Thunderbolt. We, we can't do that. It's Ninja Thunderbolt. Um, I've not seen the trailer, but I can just assume that it sounds like that. But um, anyway, plot from my review of the film. Uh, and it's not so much of a review, really, um, uh, or plot summary, because Ninja Thunderbolt is essentially the same movie as To Catch a Thief. They even reference the original presenters and producers of Tommy Lee's movies amidst their otherwise largely made-up credits, as we've established uh, before. So uh, I'll just explain some tidbits, I suppose, rather than a plot summary. Some edits were made to make room for uh, maybe 10 minutes or so of subplot with Richard Harrison playing, I love this name, Richard Lawman, who is a ninja and a cop. (laughs) That's so good. I I wish they'd you know used that more like to like, create fantastic just connections to what they do in the movie like Lawman because he's a ninja and a cop. Harry, this is Richard Lawman, superintendent of the Serious Crimes Division. But that takes effort. Ed. Uh, it's better to just stick with Richard or Gordon from Ninja Fun, uh, you know, often post Ninja Thunderbolt and onwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I didn't recognize, or remember, rather, Lawman from prior viewings, and that just stunned me this time. It is Lawman, isn't it? I'm not hearing it wrong. Lawman, because he's a cop. Lawman. Ha! <laughs> anyway, he's, uh, he's a ninja slash cop on a mission for the Ninja Empire, whose supreme leader is Yasuaki Kurata's character. Sort of. Yeah, they, they, IFD connected that way through dialogue, and he's named Chima here, not Richard Ling or anything. Richard Harrison's character is the superior of Don Wong's character called Harry in this version. Richard Lawman is also in doubt about the direction of his beloved ninja empire and is now labeled a traitor. Listen, you traitor. You have been accepted as a ninja, and you must die a ninja. Uh, credits also mention Jackie Chan. But whoever he is supposed to be in the movie, it's not that one. Uh, but, but the thing is, that didn't stop some markets promoting the movie. As a Jackie Chan movie, the big megastar Jackie Chan is in this movie. They put him on posters, on DVD covers. But I think it's a case of Ed, and you, you're welcome to have a, a different opinion and different theory. It's one of IFD's like, okay, what's a good name? Chan, we got a Chan, 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 uh, Jackie, that'll be good. And either they were very aware of what they just did or weren't. Uh, the only other theory that comes to mind is that it might be a case of um, uh, a misunderstanding when the villain's name in this one is named Jackal Chan. And I wonder if someone thought, Jackie Chan, all right. But he's also lost amongst the people credited rather than the fifth or sixth which would make sense for the jackal or cedric chan from to catch a feet but uh, who knows i mean it's by now you've if you look up ninja thunderbolt on google images you'll see you know ninja on one side jackie from rumble in the bronx on the other side starring jackie chan ninja thunderbolt and he, he's not in i want to see that movie ironically in ninja the protector there's a guy who kind of looks like jackie uh, he plays uh, in the IFD scenes, I think. Um, I've seen screenshots of him. And yeah. Like, yeah, that's kind of Jackie. He's not in it a lot in Ninja, Ninja the Protector, so it's not like they, that's the guy they credited uh, in their credits as Jackie. Um, that's the only connection. But uh, 
Although it's it's probably worth mentioning that Ninja the Protector is titled what it is because of the Jackie Chan movie The Protector. That's probably true. True. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so connection in a way there, but uh, that that that's out of the way. I have a mistake. A very aware inclusion, and it is what it is now. But there's no Jackie copy either in the IFD footage. So there you go. Short opinion from my side. I mean, Ninja Thunderbolt. It stands the test of time as one of the first and one of the smoother editing jobs by IFD and contains one of the better source movies that they paired up with Richard Harrison uh, with Richard Harrison footage uh, directed by Godfrey Ho or or whoever whoever directed because uh, Godfrey didn't direct every 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 movie but he was around for most of the Richard Harrison movies but it's not as outrageous as latter Ninja Productions the more lazy ones the more colorful ones too uh, but it's a good if at times mild feeling intro to IFT it's uh, I mean Ninja Terminator is where they stepped it up in terms of madness and it's amazing but here it's a bit more mild, if you will. Uh, so that, that, that's my brief opinion for now. What's your brief opinion on Ninja Thunderbolt, Ed? It's all right. You know, it's not the way that I would want to introduce people to IFD. And, you know, Ninja Terminator may or may not be either. Um, but I agree with you that it's that the new footage is pretty well integrated, smoothly integrated into To Catch a Thief. However, it just feels so dreadfully lazy um not in the uh death list um style that i think we've talked about before i like that you refer to it that way where you know richard harrison has to go down the list of people he needs to kill and every so often it'll cut to him killing a guy um but there are so few scenes and it just doesn't make enough sense you never really get a sense that there's much going on with the richard harrison stuff and for a movie that was um, almost certainly inspired by Enter the Ninja, certainly prompted by Enter the Ninja, um, they really don't feel the need to kind of live up to that in any way. And that, I think, I, I, I found that that frustrating, that, you know, you didn't get to see Bridget Harrison as a ninja much. The, the ninja stuff, there's like hardly anything new ninja footage-wise. They just kind of rely on the fact that there are some ninjas or ninja looking guys in the original film i don't know it was not it was not particularly thrilling for me it it, it feels like a first uh, definitely uh, even though they had dabbled in cut and paste if you will before because the 1983 was the first um uh, thunderbolt movie mission thunderbolt uh, uh, so they dabbled in the technique yeah uh, and had used Taiwanese movies as source uh, before, which uh, I, I've never gotten confirmation of this, but I always got a sense that uh, Joseph Lai scored a package deal of maybe 15 movies or something like that to be used, uh, either cut up like this or presented complete, which they did. Uh, and To Catch a Thief was uh, among them uh, and a good pick because of the content that is there. You know, uh, So you could even make To Catch a Thief a little bit more smoother by taking out that 10 minutes, if you will, and inserting your Westerners <laughs> into it. Uh, um, but it depends on what you think of the footage with Richard Harrison and, um, and company. But but there are a lot of sellable elements here in the final product, which I think is key for um, you know what, why it kind of stands out, that it, it's not often that they had this kind of a pairing. Uh, sometimes, as we know, they paired it up with uh, a melodrama. 
<laughs> but here it is ninja action and their ninja action, if you will. There's not, I mean, you normally hear quotes from movies uh, in this show. Because it's sort of a mild one that I like uh, overall, there's not a whole lot of outrageous stuff here, Ed. But, of course, it opens up outrageously, and I'm sure you're itching to talk of how it opens up and the kind of um, speech that is... Uh, presented by Richard Harrison's ninja leader, if you will. Uh, they um, they have a mission plan for the world, if you will, uh, the ninja. So I want to talk about how the movie opens, essentially. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, it starts off with uh, ninja pep talk with uh, <laughs> the, the ninja master. And here's where it gets confusing, because there seems to be an older ninja master who is, you know, like the sort of typical... I am the leader of all of these ninjas. And then there's some confusion about later on where, uh, I guess, Karada's character is now the master because the other guy died. But uh, we didn't think so because Karada talks earlier about returning to the Jade Horse, the master. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, so you get to hear all of these wonderful gems from the ninja leader, who, which, which come up later in some of the later IFD ninja films. Um, for example... The ninja empire is supreme. Um, you know, the, the, when we take up a mission, we must succeed or die. Mm-hmm. Born a ninja, die a ninja, uh, and so forth. One of my absolute favorites being, um, our blood and soul originate from central China. <laughs> like, do, do they? Do they really? All right. We said it. I, <laughs> it must be I true. Was, I was unaware of this. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to play the thing in full? Yeah, I mean, we might as well. It's so outrageous. I mean, we we can say this. The Ninja Empire are willing to go after everyone. Everyone. Everyone, as Gary Oldman would say. And that's what they do, and that's the tidbit that you're going to hear. That's so fantastic. Um, So watch out. You, 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 listener, you might be the target of the Ninja Empire if you take a wrong step step on the street tomorrow. So, So listen to this madness. Our Ninja Empire is supreme. Omnipotent, righteous, and our blood and soul originate from central China. Our techniques are dominant and unbeatable. We must relinquish our own interests, and we must rise above all emotions and overcome our desires. We must devote ourselves to our cause. If the gods are angry with us, We must kill the gods. If the spirits of the dead rise up against us, we must kill them as well. When our emperor denies us, we must kill him without mercy. Even if our own father objects to us, he must die also. We must eliminate all our enemies. Our blood is motivated by ninja spirit. When we take up a mission, We must succeed or die by our own sword. Otherwise, we will be executed according to our ninja empire law. Either we kill ourselves or we are killed by our brothers. To die the death of a ninja is a glorious way to die. You are born to be a ninja and to die a ninja. You know, don't have a cat or anything like that. If a cat crosses our path, he must die. <laughs> kill the cat. Uh, so, there you go. Uh, I guess my question is, Ed, I've seen this movie so tightly together. Um, I'm sure you 
you know, had to catch a fever a little bit in the back of your mind and basically how it played and you remembered certain scenes. Did you spot a lot of the edits that IFT had to do? Because I got to tell you, I didn't spot many. Clearly, they had to take out a lot of stuff, but I didn't spot a lot, which is either me not paying attention or them editing kind of uh, with sense and kind of in a subtle way. No, I think I liked I liked the fact that they really chopped it down. Um, I'm sort of surprised that they cut out some of the other sex scenes because, like I said before, it's the sort of sensational stuff that IFD would normally want to include in a film and often did. Um, but uh, that was probably one of the main things is that there were a couple of sex scenes that were cut out and an extended uh, scene where Don Wong and his wife talk about their relationship. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Their, their first sex scene when it comes home off the, off the scarecrow with the mask, that is cut out, which is an edit I, I don't mind because they embrace and they have a kiss and uh, and then, you know, uh, it's, uh, we cut to whatever scene came after that. So it's not a bad edit. But this edit, of course, features a lot of, especially in the latter half, at least two way raunchier and close to pornographic sex scenes that were not into Catch a Thief. This was a case of the director clearly shooting, clearly shooting alternates to uh, to be used for different markets that allowed this and did not allow it, which is uh, makes this interesting because we have we have it here instead. You know, it's present in a in, in an alternate way, not edited differently. It's clearly just um, they did it twice. You know, one mild one. Not so mild. Yeah, so uh, that that makes it inter- that that makes the sex way more interesting in this movie. I gotta tell you. So. Oh yeah. One point we gotta hammer home is why Ninja Thunderbolt feels similar to, to to Catch a Thief is the fact that IFD do not interfere a whole lot. I, I often use when it's this way, when they don't uh, place themselves in the same room as the original movie and talk to the other movie. I I refer to it as IFD running alongside the other movie. Yeah, I like that. It's not a bad thing to to uh, because it's it can feel a, a bit more smoother, but also can make IFD's contributions a bit more anonymous than you than than you want. I mean, you kind of want them to uh, provide the nutsoid stuff here, and here they're kind of taking a step back or not. They don't feel confident taking a step in, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think probably the biggest problem is not even so much that it's. Uh, I guess, I guess you're obviously we're not talking about it as a problem, but I think one of the biggest issues is that it's not just alongside. It's sort of like it's it's there and it's a slight like th- there's not much of it running alongside. Mm-hmm. When it does, it it connects rather well. I mean, there's a there's one of they use some of the tropes that would become or you know some of the techniques that would become tropes. Uh, in their later work, like the phone calls, and in this case, it worked really well because uh, Don Wong gets a call from his boss uh, at the police station to go somewhere, and uh, in the IFD version, Don Wong gets a call from his boss, who in this case happens to be Richard Harrison, to go somewhere. So that's not Richard uh, Lawman. Know, thank you very much. Richard, yeah, I'm sorry, Richard Lawman. <laughs> or uh, he, they have to go. He goes to a briefing to learn about you know the crimes that are being committed and who the bad guys are, and they kind of shoehorn Richard Harrison into the same room. That's a pretty neatly edited scene. They but... did a really good job with that one. Yeah. Um, and that, in general, like they do a really good job integrating the stuff. They just don't have any ambition. And uh, you know, there's um, they would they do the the drug the drugs subplot. You know, so and so smuggling drugs, selling drugs that they would do over and over and over and over again. And here again, it works really well because there is a small drugs subplot in um, to catch a thief. Uh-huh. 
there, there, there's a disgusting weed deal, I suppose. That this is IFD's footage that uh, John Ladalski buys. Uh, I suppose they are joints, and his dealer is um, keeping them in his mouth, and a lot of them in his mouth. Like he gets like seven or eight of them, and just you know, takes them out of his mouth like a magic trick. It looks like a Marx Brothers bit. <laughs> like it's never ending too. Like, have you got any more? Oh yes, I do. <laughs> just keep going and going and going. Looks disgusting, man. But I guess if you want your drugs and you want your hit, then you gotta like deal with phlegm, I suppose, too. Yep. Uh, but uh, it's like, uh, ironically, not ironically, but uh, fantastically, uh, actor Kong Do is in To Catch a Thief in one scene. And he was an IFD regular as well, and he turns up in their footage. And so he's in the old and new footage, and they even reference, I think, in the dubbing, like, I'm released from prison now. Oh, yeah. So that's because they bust him. They, you know, they, they bust him in that scene that we've been talking about, the, the weed deal and what have you. Uh, Kong Do was a constant worker. I mean, he worked at IFD, and he was in tons and tons of movies. Uh, Donald Kong, often at IFD, uh, even at Filmok, too. So... There you go. They, they, that's the other example I can think of where the original actors were present uh, for IFD or Filmark. The other is Filmark's uh, Tough Ninja, The Shadow Warrior, where Philip Kofei was in the original Hong Kong movie that was the source, and he shot one scene for IFD, or two scenes rather, playing the same character, and he had a moustache in the original, and they put a really bad moustache on him in the new footage as well. So they, oh, that's uh, amazing. So. Man, that was the the one for this film. was It was buzzing in the back of my head like something was up, and uh, uh, it didn't it didn't occur to me uh, until you said that. That's amazing. You owe me money. Huh. You killed Wong's wife. He won't let you get away. I think you'd better stay here. But I've got to take the money back. It's ninja law. I must report to the master. So, pretty cool. I mean, since the movies were shot so close together, I mean, um, released in 1984, both of them, Kong Do obviously didn't uh, grow old overnight or anything. So, it works uh, that way and didn't have, uh, you know, facial hair in uh, one scene and facial, uh, no facial hair in the other. The scene where Richard is leading the briefing in that smoky room with the Taiwanese police officer, as we said, it works. It gets a bit awkward because we know how the original scene works when uh, Richard Lawman is uh, talking to uh, Harry. And so, you know, essentially saying, oh, you know, Harry, have you understood? And Harry looks blindly in the distance and then cut to Richard. Harry, no! And that is awkward because in a reality, what's going on there is that Don, Don's character in the original is troubled by the fact that he's been threatened on the phone by Karata's Richard Ling in the original movie, so he's kind of distraught and kind of just not thinking clear and what have you. It's only awkward when you know the original movie. But it was a very clever way to uh, to integrate it. It is very much clever and a lot more effort, uh, as we've established, is put forward by by IFD. So it's not this this disobedient cop who doesn't listen to his superiors uh, in actuality, you know. So it's 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 kind of cool. It's kind of cool. What helps? Accepting Ninja Thunderbolt the most, I suppose, is the fact that I knew beforehand, and I certainly did, and I certainly found out when I first watched it, that the action footage from the original is going to be entertaining despite being now a re-edit per definition. So, because it all is present here, I couldn't find any substantial cuts of Tommy Lee's original action footage. So it's 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 entertaining to be watching it again, but 
you're also thinking at the same time that you're watching to catch a thief again, in a way, you know, because you know of both movies, it's hard to think in your head that Ninja Thunderbolt is one, which it isn't, it is two. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but uh, it's regardless uh, entertaining to be watching it again. So that therefore we won't speak of the action and uh, things like that again. Was it redundant, you think, to be watching the footage again just because you watched Thief like hours before or the day before? Yeah, it was. It really was. I mean, I just, there's, uh, I, I keep harping on it and I apologize, but there's just so little new footage that I, I was kind of zoning out, you know, watching uh, To Catch a Thief again. Yeah, I know that bit. I know that bit. I know that the, bit. Um, <laughs> the dubbing, um, the, the, because it's a new dub, it's a completely different yes. dub of the film. Um, I thought it was quite good. I actually, I think it might have even been a little bit better than the Ocean Shores dub, but that's just my opinion. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's again, it's we appreciate IFD for being so outrageous with their content and their dub, but here it's more straight faced, if anything, which is I don't mind the quality, but I suppose Ninja Thunderbolt is not my premium favorite because it's it's not as colorful, literally, and we get to the ninjas on that color note in a little bit as well our ninja was supreme and good but when shima took over the empire after the death of the master he misled the ninja empire now there's only greed and lust for power the ninja empire is on the brink of destruction nonsense shima's leadership is perfect i think i'm sure stole a lot of music from some elsewhere from records and movies and put into this movie they are not layering in the music very well at all all. For instance, in the scene where Don Wong finds his wife dead, they're like using this majestic music. It's like lo- lo- like Lawrence of Arabia kind Something of Something right? like that. Yeah, 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 it's very much of that that genre. I mean, it's just like this is going kind of sorrowful. Do you guys know what sorrowful means? Like tragedy means? Yeah. We know. Okay, boss. <laughs> you know, Joseph Lai probably like instructed them, or Godfrey Ho instructed them, and then they just messed up. <laughs> so it's entertaining, but it's not layered in very well. So spontaneously, did, did you spot any recognizable um, cues or um, tracks score from from other movies or uh, from? Um... No, no, not this, not this time around. Because there is that. Uh, I, I can't tape it now, but uh, obviously I'll, I'll play a little bit of it during the show. There, there is a piece of music that they. Uh, used for the main credits, I think, uh, that is repeated a few times, and it just sounds... It's either public domain or it's stolen from somewhere, and it sounds like IFD had, had used that a number of times. And, and IFD have used that music a number of times in, in their movies. Obviously, our outro, uh, the wonderful... That is in opening credits to other movies as well. Like It's a very like upbeat, upbeat track, so... Um, it's uh, what they had, they kind of reused, uh, but never got in trouble for it, seemingly. Which is amazing, because they were international businessmen that sold uh, property that featured unlicensed, you know, not paid for uh, inclusions and aspects. Um, so, so it's amazing that business can still get on globally without it uh, being, uh, you know, shot down or anything. But uh, I don't know, it, maybe it was so much, it was so widely distributed, but so under the radar slash... People thought this was crap anyway, so no harm, no foul. I, you know, if I if I was to make a guess, and it's purely a guess, it's being distributed internationally, but by countries that don't that don't care, wouldn't notice. I mean, you know, they're shipping it to 
Africa and Germany and, and, and places where, you know, a lot of the copyright holders might be in America. And these movies aren't making their way to America outside of um, video stores. And I would be surprised if there were in the 80s uh, agents of um, the major studios uh, trawling the, the video stores and uh, finding these direct-to-video releases and searching them for uh, music that might be taken from their libraries. Mm-hmm. So it just would be so unlikely that they would even be found out. Yeah. They, they, they probably maybe came to that conclusion as well. That your, very, oh, yeah. your, your very explanation, that's maybe something Joseph Lai and company you know, pondered. and Because um, they were not stupid. I mean, they, they probably knew what they were doing in terms of that, that music sounds great. It's not ours, but yeah, it'll, it'll work, you know. We'll be able oh, yeah. to. We'll be able to do it, and they were able to do it. So. And Hong Kong was never has never been real, real like uh, uh, serious about copyright law. No, really, no, no. I mean, um, even down to scenes from other movies replicated in <laughs> in their movies. So, uh, but yeah, uh, did you spot some familiar footage uh, that? Because I think the origin point is right about here for some familiar footage uh, so any spontaneous notes on that uh, and uh, when I say familiar footage stuff that's been reused in latter IFD movies too sure um, uh, you know the one that comes to mind uh, I guess there are probably a couple that come to mind um, but uh, the finale of this one the final fight and confrontation between Richard Harrison and the the lady ninja uh, is used in the robot delivered VHS tape uh, in Ninja Terminator <laughs> It's like in, it's like Inception here, Ed. <laughs> it totally is, um, and I believe that there are some scenes that were uh, used in, and I don't, I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the the films where they just kept reusing a whole mess of uh, of Richard Harrison scenes from his various films. Well, I'm thinking of um, uh, Diamond Ninja Force featured uh, some varied Richard Harrison footage because his uh, hair color and hairstyle varies through throughout that movie. I mean, that's he, the one I'm thinking of, uh, including you know Richard in this movie sitting down uh, at a desk. You don't, you don't see the desk. Uh, he's got a red shirt on, some posters in the back, some like PSAs because presumably he's in a police station. Maybe the widescreen framing of that shot reveals some actual like clues where he actually is. But we got, we got a cropped frame here, and he's talking to uh, Don Wong in the other movie. That, that's one of the few examples where where they place the characters in, in the same room, and uh, that has been reused. Um, he's also keep he's also holding a, like a. A little um, letter opener in his hand. So it all stands out because of that too. He's holding a letter opener in his hand. The uh, the posters behind him, those those ones that you mentioned, the PSA posters, like the woman bound and gagged, and then in, in great big letters it says, "It could happen to you." Oh yeah! Oh my God! Yes, that's it. That one reappears in uh, Ninja the Protector, one of my favorites in um, the in the police conference room. Mm-hmm. But it looks to have been shot for this one because the dubbing matches. Oh yeah, 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 and I'm and I'm and I'm just referring to the the poster anyway. The poster just gets reused. So uh, here's a kind of an origin point, and obviously Richard uh, walking into either his bathroom or lit up closet and taking out his uh, ninja sword. He, he's wearing his red shirt. Uh, he's buttoned up and what have you, and he takes that out. That's been reused for Diamond Ninja Force. There's there's this actually a, an additional scene that happens the same way. Only Richard comes out. Now a ninja after going into his uh, closet or his bathroom that I've never seen reused before, and there is 
only this one. And there is a reason for that. And this is no news to you, Ed, but to listeners, you associate IT with these colorful ninjas in these, you know, yellow suits, or red suits, and glittery suits. Uh, it's the same here, isn't it? No, it isn't. They are literally just black clad ninjas in this one. They are literally the way they're supposed to look, which is strange. It's not the common sight I'm used to. And I got to tell you, I don't prefer it this way. I don't. No. <laughs> it is not, not even ninja headbands yet. I mean, that was an idea that they took and ran with a year or two in, I suppose. Um, not even Ninja Terminator has ninja headbands that says ninja on them. That, that's why it's mild, the, the Ninja Thunderbolt. That, they tried to do it like they saw it being done in Into the Ninja, I suppose. Even though I think Franco Nero was a white, uh, white-clad yep. ninja in that. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so maybe more from Revenge of the Ninja in terms of inspiration, if you will. Uh, so, I mean, it's fun to see him transformed and everything, and we see the classic, you know, ninja transformations in smoke and what have you. But it's not as... I mean, it's good to see, I suppose, but it, it's not as fun, despite them it's doing... It's not a, fun. Yeah. They're doing a good job in terms of, as we have established, like smooth editing and inserting Richard into scenes and what have you, but it's still not, um, you know, this fireworks display of uh, of ninjutsu VIFD way. Not yet, anyway. There, there were a couple of moments um, that were kind of prototypes for things that would happen later, some, a l- some little bits of silliness that would go on to become bigger bits of silliness in, in other films um, that might be worth mentioning. Um, one of which was, you know, where many of us are familiar with the the robot from Ninja Terminator who delivers a videotape with the um, the death threat, you know, traitor, you have three days to return the Golden Ninja Warrior, yada, yada, yada. Yes. <laughs> um, this time around, uh, there's no robot, there's no videotape, but there is an audio cassette tape um, yes. that basically does the same deal that's left on um, one of the ninja victims. And uh, we see Richard Harrison putting it into his early 80s Walkman. Also a shot reused for Diamond Ninja Force. Oh, wow, I'd forgotten about that. Because I've seen that shot in uh, scope and cropped, because there is a scope version of Diamond Ninja Force. I've seen seen the widescreen composition of that in the uh, office scene that we talked of uh, before. Uh, So yeah, that's like two times they've reused that. But uh, again, listeners, Ninja Terminator, I suppose, was the time where the first time with the Garfield phone here, regular old black phones. Boring. (laughs) But the same sound effects for the phones. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I suppose it's stock sound effects that. No, oh, of course it is. I mean, yes. I mean, it's no use like uh, sourcing new phone, uh, phone foley, if you will, or whatever. No, of course not. So I mean, when it's there, just reuse it. And, uh, uh, but, but yeah, so, so the color isn't um, present. But obviously, it, it's it's important if you care about the IFT history, and we do, to have Ninja Thunderbolt in your library, kind of a. Your mental library of how it kind of started, how it kind of developed, developed into both joyous things and awful things. Because as we have established, not all of these movies were Ninja Terminator entertaining. Some of these movies were downright just embarrassing and unbearable. Because you you can't just redo, redo, redo the same thing and expect magic every time. There's there's this Godfrey Hope creativity that is present every now and again and it's quite joyous to watch but it's not at all times there sometimes it's awkward in a wonderful way 
and sometimes it's just embarrassing and tedious to watch. Shima's been killed. It was an act of justice. Forget your ninja lore. Let's go back to reality. It's not tedious here, but it's my my my, my phrase of choice is mild, which doesn't make it unbearable, but makes it makes me kind of yearn for when it's wild, I suppose. Yeah, as opposed yeah, to mild. mild. Mild is fair. Yeah. Again, going back to a little bit to, to Catch a Thief, and the, the fact that they shot uh, alternates of the um, of the sex scenes uh, on some occasions. And so this version at IT, the, at least what was delivered to them, was the raunchier version of To Catch a Thief, because we in the original we had some we had some sex scenes and they they were fairly explicit but they were definitely more tamer than what we get here for instance uh, i don't remember what she was called here but the daughter of uh, cedric chan or jackal i think she was jenny in the original and something else here a daughter that's supposed to be 18 she doesn't look like 18 at all she's a full-blown woman but uh, the, she sleeps with one of the younger henchmen as well as richard ling the ninja and that sex scene with the younger henchman where they run he runs into the shower with her he has his clothes on she does not have her clothes on and they after a while they go onto the bed and there's some really like close to not hardcore but definitely like raunchier softcore pornography present here with oral sex and you can see the guy's testicles at one point i i, I spotted these things that <laughs> i just do Look, it's research. You're, you're doing your job. Definitely research, and I, therefore I wish this print was a bit more. Uh, it wasn't as dark because it's a damn dark print of Ninja Thunderbolt. Uh, so, so you can't see a lot, but I still spotted uh, the guy's balls. So, as I said, fun to have because it here because it ex- we know now alternates exist, and but that's not saying the sex scenes truly belong for those minutes that they uh, go on for. But hey, it's 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 good fun to have them. So again, not a lot of goofy dubbing, as I said, not a lot of editing and trimming by IFD that is evident in a way. I mean, I couldn't spot like, oh, they took out 10 minutes right out of the movie there. A lot of the action is uh, maintained and uh, it all just flows, I suppose, quite decently and ends with uh, Richard versus a female ninja for once, which is uh, a nice inclusion to have. You know, uh, a female action performer and actress, uh, the acting in English with Richard, because clearly her her dubbing, uh, her English dubbing matches uh, her lips too. So it's uh, it's nice. And for the action aspect of IFD, there, there's some decent bursts here of uh, acrobatic and weapons choreography by either the all male uh, stunt cast or maybe that girl who acts against Richard Harrison is martial arts able. I'm not uh, too sure about that, but it's. It's nice to see at the end of the movie, even if we still, as we said, yearn for the wilder IFD. But you know, it's it's interesting though because, um, and I, I do like I, I dig that. Um, but uh, that character is sort of symptomatic of uh, some of those laziness laziness issues that I was talking about. Because here's a character, the the sort of big bad guy for Richard Harrison, um, and we've never seen her before. She, she she's in the dark in the first movie with Richard Harrison in the, in the first scene. Uh, I, I think she's there listening to that uh, weird speech, but uh, not oh, very. Oh right, but, yeah, but okay. it's not very evident because the damn print is so dark anyway. So yeah, but I, that that hardly counts. <laughs> I agree, I agree. But yeah, it's not that they like they set her up uh, as such. It, it, apparently, we get the sense that someone is after him, 
uh, via the tape he listens to, and she turns out at the end, uh, turns up at the end of the movie. So yeah, I, I agree. It's not super well thought out or anything. Um, Life is precious. Traitor! Why don't you kill me? A ninja shows no mercy. And and not that IFD ever were premium storytellers and uh, elite editors. No, but they they usually got to have a good time with the bad guy. Oh, yo, oh, definitely. Uh, I think uh, that, that that's why we like it more later on when these uh, random guys or uh, actual actors uh, that got a chance to be more visible at IFT just went for it because their direction, it's, it turns up in interviews a whole lot, their direction they often got from, from Godfrey Ho was act big, you know, and he acted big and he was pleased with that. And that's why... That, that's where the entertainment comes in, you know. Uh, you know, I, I keep thinking of uh, it's a movie we'll bring up eventually, Thunder of the Gigantic Serpent. You oh, know, yeah. where I'll, yeah, I'll rule the world or whatever he says, and that sounds like you've heard it a million times before. But within the con- uh, context of Serpent, it's just marvelous how how he goes for it, and uh, he's just one of many examples of guys acting big because that's what they were asked to do, and. Uh, we, we we thank them for it. Here it's it's not big, it's mild. But Richard doesn't look necessarily super bored. Not yet anyway. It'll come. It'll come. Yeah. But life keeps draining out of him, movie by movie. So all those one movie he shot. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He only signed on for one movie. One one long, 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 long movie with just ninja action. That's another story. That that's a story for from a different podcast. So we won't go over it again. So I I, I guess I have no other notes. It. Other than if you're interested in like the IFT timeline, Ninja Thunderbolt is almost at the start of it. And the cut and paste examples, uh, I gotta say though, the earlier ones during the fun, uh, other Thunderbolt era, with uh, Majestic Thunderbolt in, in particular, which is my favorite IFT movie, hands down, regardless of ninjas or, or not in them, is uh, that's the best example of how IFT uh, inserted themselves in. Uh, in uh, the original movie, and uh, it helps in the case of Majestic Thunderbolt that the original movie is pretty brutal and kick-ass. It's a Taiwanese movie again. So, uh, but uh, those like early examples, they were pretty decent. Mission Thunderbolt, I remember, was good fun because it was a, a, a not wild, but a, quite quite okay Taiwanese source movie. And as I said, Majestic Thunderbolt, Magnum Thunderbolt, I think was a complete movie. I don't think that was cut and paste. Um, so they 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 worked. They were not bad at it initially, but I guess when they started to inserting to insert ninjas, they got their feet wet kind of from this movie and then on and then started to just be wild after that, if you will. Uh, really quickly though, I think yeah, like a two or three ninja movies in, they were you know experimenting, if you will, and just going for it. And uh, that's the key to the IFD success and fandom, I suppose, uh, of it. You, you you gotta have it. You gotta have Ninja Thunderbolt, but uh, it's not the one that you want to revisit uh, weekly or monthly or anything. That no. that is reserved for Ninja Terminator, I suppose. Uh, not seen Ninja the Protector yet, anyway. I have it on disc finally, but uh, not seen it yet, anyway. So. You were the best ninja. Uh, so that's the end of my notes, buddy. Do you want to add anything else? I think that you have wrapped it up nicely. All righty. And as for availability, it's been on VHS all over the world for years, as we've established, but there is a U.S. disc version, DVD version of it, by BCI Eclipse that's still in print, and it's what I own personally. It's a two-disc double feature with Invincible, the other movie being Invincible Hero, a.k.a. Main Street of Kung Fu. 
I uh, don't remember that movie. I think I've seen it, but it's left my memory. Ninja Thunderbolt is a very dark, cropped uh, version, but there, there's no widescreen version out there that I've seen. In some territories, it might be, but there's no widescreen version of Ninja Thunderbolt in Japan. I'm not sure about France, so I'm not, not sure about Greece, but I haven't seen any yet. And um, so I would recommend if you want to watch it, the 12, 13 bucks or whatever that Amazon charges for this two-disc uh, edition, this Kung Fu double feature, is a decent price if you want to get it. I mean, um, it's rare that these things are imprinted on disc at all nowadays. So, um, so uh, go get it. That's interesting because I I got mine. Uh, I sort of wish I had the the version that you have. Um, I got mine as a one disc double feature from East West DVD, which uh, is sounds ropey <laughs> to me. Yeah, they're ropey exactly. And uh, the other movie on the disc is Fire Dragon, which is uh, ostensibly a comedy redub of fantasy mission force oh, yeah. uh, and i i watched about 10 minutes of it and i couldn't take it anymore because it was uh, all delivered in monotone and super quietly and nothing was funny and uh, i actually like fantasy mission force it's a fantastic so. movie that edit is pretty unbearable they they re- they retooled it and it's pretty boring actually uh yeah that fire dragon edit is uh, is out there on various budget dvds uh uh, so, so it's good. I mean, it is VHS source and what have you, Ninja Thunderbolt, but it, at least it got its own DVD rather than crammed into uh, onto another DVD with. Uh, yes. So uh, that's pretty good. So tw- twelve thirteen bucks, I think, is uh, is fair. Uh, so if you want to get it, at least Amazon stocks the version, and there might be other disc releases too. But I think BCI Eclipse are legit um, in, in as a company. So um, hopefully they did source it legally and release it legally. But um, regardless. That's what I have. That's what, So it's out there. Okay, next time. We've mentioned the other company doing IFD's Formula 2, and even well, as well. And it was Thomas Tang's Filmark. And I thought it'd be fair to check in on what they had to offer, a little sample of what they had to offer. So what I picked randomly from their Ninja library, because they did cut and paste Ninja movies and other genres too after the ninja era was over so first of all we'll be looking at shadow killers tiger force so no ninja in the title even it's a female ninja in the lead combined with a woman in prison or women in prison movie from 1976 i am so there it's a korean taiwanese co-production by a very famous korean director shin sang oak uh, I believe directed it. He's, uh, he did Flower in Hell, and he was the director that was allegedly kidnapped by Kim Jong Il and was forced to make movies, including Pearl Gasari. Oh that's, my God, that's the same guy. It's uh, Shin Sang Ok. I believe. I had no idea that that's that that's who directed. It was who's directing um, uh, the Tiger Force. You yeah, on the uh, Shadow Killers Tiger Force. There you go. And I'm, I'm going to check what it's called now, just because uh, I can, and I can sort of tighten this in editing. Uh, so let's check here. Girls in the Tiger Cage. <laughs> Awesome. It, it's decent, I suppose. But I, uh, my review said that uh, it's the one of the better times with ninjas at Filmark, yeah. and it's even easier to spot the different footage, if you will, because the old, mo- the the 
transfer of the old movie they got is kind of faded, and uh, filmic footage is a lot more colorful than that. I'll tell you that much. But uh, hey, it stars Cora Bentley, according to the credits. I don't know if that was her real name, but hey, that's uh, our female ninja at Filmark. So that's the first movie for the Filmark special, if you will. And also, when Thomas Tang abandoned ninjas, when that wasn't profitable for him anymore, just like Joseph Lai did, he went into kickboxing movies, but Tang didn't. He had another, you know, his um, love, and they saw market potential in some other stuff. And God bless him for it, because he found Hopping Vampires, and he had seen Robocop. So therefore, we look at the classic Robo Vampire that features a boring Thai movie, a source source, uh, movie, in between the legendary footage that makes up Robo Vampire. But here's the twist. Most of the footage in Robo Vampire is Filmark's own. The majority of it, at least 60-70% of it, maybe even more. And thank God. And that'll be a party, I'll tell you that much, because it's just wonderful to watch. It's, it's like, so good. It's like this, okay, it's gone on for five minutes, maybe they'll switch to the other movie. Are they switching now? No, they clearly are not, because with the hoping vampires and the ghosts and what have you, there are Westerners and Kong Do is in there and Robo Warrior. He's not Robo Vampire, he's Robo Warrior. He's still there. I think it's stuff they shot on their own. Awesome! <laughs> you know? And it's the same for, like, this, not the sequel, but the other movie that Robo Vampire appears in, uh, Counter Destroyer, or Destroy, which is also called Vampire something. Um, he appears in the last scene <laughs> versus the Hopping Vampire. All of a sudden, Robo Warrior turns up. Uh, so uh, it's marvelous, and we'll probably look at that at some point. But Robo Vampire, credited to Bruce Livingstone, not Godfrey Ho. Hashtag not Godfrey Ho. God damn it, stop. It's, you know, we'll talk about that during the show, but it's so clear. If you watch these movies, the best of Godfrey Ho, the energetic Godfrey Ho versus the energetic stuff that the so-called Bruce Livingstone directed in Robo Vampire, there's no way that's the same filmmaker. No way, because it's better, and it's weirder, and it's fueled by creativity and maybe drugs, but... It's great. It's a party. Robo Vampire is my ab- one of my absolute favorites. I love it to death. Uh, it's kind of they have, I guess, their two or three movies where the concept of cutting and pasting and what have you really worked. A lot of them work well, but there are some key examples where it really worked. And Robo Vampire, I think, is where it really worked, and it probably shouldn't have. You know, considering you know very well, Ed, the design of. Robo Warrior in that movie. It shouldn't work, yes. but man, is it uh, glorious. So. And if you if you if you do if you want to do a little bit of homework before that episode, uh, I recommend. Uh, on, I think on YouTube, if you search for Robo Vampire, uh, there is somebody very clever has cut down Robo Vampire into the essential two minutes, and um, it is fantastic and it's a great way to get a sense of of the film if you don't have the time to watch the entire film which is great but there's a, there, there's more than just great uh, two minutes of great greatness oh yes early, so uh but yeah it's good it's great not godfrey ho not godfrey ho at all so you know do, do, do that homework listeners you know watch ninja terminator because it's on youtube and watch robo vampire which is probably on youtube as well and then, then come back to me and see if you think that's the same 
you know, filmmaker for for the stuff that isn't the source movies in in, in those respective productions. So, mm. uh, but there you go. Uh, so let's do that next time for episode six. But uh, meanwhile, let's round this up with contact information. This has been the Golden Ninja Podcast on the Podcast on Fire Network. Our website is podcastonfire.com with this shows, all the other shows, and bonus episodes. Email us if you have any feedback or questions. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Join our discussion group at Facebook. Uh, type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar to find the discussion group. And like our page to facebook.com forward slash POF Network. And follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. I do reviews of uh, ninja movies like this and uh, various other Taiwanese movies and Hong Kong movies at sogoodreviews.com. And I video review at sleazykvideo.com. And I tweet at twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. The Golden Ninja podcast is available on iTunes, so rate and subscribe. And if, and if you have the time, please leave a small written comment uh, telling us exactly what you thought of the show, good or bad. We would love to hear from you. And finally, stream us on Stitcher Radio if you don't like downloading podcasts to your preferred device. Do that through their website, but the smoothest way to do that is to download the free app from the App Store or to your iPhone or iPad. And there's also an Android version available as well. And finally, add Neon Harbor plugs and uh, a little bit of mention of Space Ninja again, if you will. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you can find me uh, and my films and web series, including Ninja the Mission Force, where uh, I parody Ninja Thunderbolt in Season 2, uh, at neonharbor.com. Also there, you can find out about and order Space Ninja, which I referred to earlier in the show, um, sort of Chambara in space. And uh, it should be out on DVD by the time this episode airs. Um, I'm also on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash neon harbor and on Twitter at twitter.com slash neon underscore harbor. All righty. And let's leave the mild IFT and look forward to wild film arc and more wild IFT. And, and I should state this. Uh, maybe I should have said it at the beginning. These first five episodes represented the basic overview, not in any way, you know, the definitive overview. I wanted to do history. I wanted of IFT Films and Arts, get some misinfo out of the way and provide as much correct info as we can and go through some of the examples of the cutting and pasting, whether they were ninja movies in, in theme or kickboxing movies in theme and certainly superhero movies, movies uh, as a theme, you know, and uh, as content, which was the Catman movies. And this was the final bit, the final part of the basic core overview with where we looked at how an original movie worked versus how it worked when IFD retooled it and created their new movie. So that's the basic overview, but that means the party will still go on with uh, dips into film work, as we said, and also dips into the various other movies that we appreciate or don't appreciate. Maybe they're worth talking about because we don't appreciate them. I don't know, but it's going to be more uh, random uh, random picks uh, from now on. Now on. And, and let me pitch you something right now, uh, just because I'm. Uh, uh, it came to me. We've talked of Ninja Operation Night and Warrior a couple of times. It's, mm-hmm. it's the IFD movie where the majority of the footage is IFD's own footage. The, the source movie is not used extensively. I propose... And this is a, something you can say no to immediately if you like. But I propose doing an audio commentary on Ninja Operation Night and Warrior. That sounds awesome. And watch it, you know, and see 
if we can say something about it in, so to say, real time. But uh, because it's a party movie, kind of, uh, as you've referred, uh, you refer to it as kind of the IFD party movie because they're, oh, all, yeah. they're all in there, you know. Richard is mm-hmm. in there, Stuart Smith is in there, and uh, you got the Black Ninja because it's called Black Ninja in other territories. Alphonse Benny in there as well, and uh, it's a good time. So, you know, absorb that and uh, let's uh, let that uh, let that idea soak for a little bit. Uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, remember, kids. I am the champion of the ninjas. 